Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really happy to have with us Kendall Gretsch. Kendall is a para triathlete as well as being a para Nordic skier. And she has just completed the double of games being Tokyo last year and then followed six months later by Beijing, which is quite the achievement. She has won a gold medal in Tokyo and has won multiple medals, both in Pyeongchang and in Beijing as a paranautic skier. So welcome to the podcast, Kendall. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's great to have you. I'm really interested to hear about how you balance the two different sports that you do. But firstly, can you tell us a bit about your impairment and also your background? Just give us a little bit of a background on yourself, your impairment, and maybe how you got into paratriathlon first. Okay. Yeah. So I was born with spina bifida. So just impacting my lower limb function. And yeah, I uh, grew up outside of Chicago. And yeah, I really wasn't, I guess I was involved in sports my whole life, but not really competitively and not at a competitive level until I was actually in college. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just always kind of swam with my neighborhood team and did sports all just locally. And then uh, when I was in college, I found out about the Paralympics and started looking into what that was, what that meant, and how I could compete as an adaptive athlete. And so I started researching groups that had, you know, adaptive swim, because mm-hmm. that was my background. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually ended up going to a swim practice. And at the swim practice afterwards, they had track practice and they asked me, like, oh, do you want, have you ever used a racing wheelchair? Do you want to come out and try the racing wheelchair? We have all the equipment here. And I was like, sure, I'll try that. And then uh, also at that practice, the person that was running it had just started a paratriathlon club in Chicago called Dare to Try. Mm-hmm. And she invited me out to their practices, signed me up for a camp, signed me up for a race. Yeah. So it was kind of this crazy one day experience where all of a sudden I just got thrown into <laughs> <laughs> thrown into the world and I found paratriathlon. Awesome. And so with your spina bifida, let's just cover that in a little bit of detail. So you ambulate using crutches on a day-to-day basis generally, don't you? Correct. Yeah. So I use leg braces, yeah, like lower leg braces and then, yeah, forearm crutches. Yeah. Okay. And so the level of this, of the impairment, I guess, for want of a better word, in your spina bifida, is that fairly low down on your spine? Yes. Yeah. I would say... You know, I think it's a little bit different than like maybe a traditional spinal cord injury where they would classify you as like go T11 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I've been told that it's like somewhat similar to being L4, L5. Right. But yeah, not, I guess not exactly the same. And my right and left side are pretty different in terms of strength. So my right side is a lot stronger than my left side. Mm-hmm. And then I also have a pretty significant scoliosis kind of like curving to the right because of that imbalance between the right and left side and what about sensation do you have full sensation or do you have only partial sensation yeah partial sensation so it's pretty pretty spotty like knees down Mm -hmm. and then 
I would say gets a little bit more full sensation, like higher up on my legs, but still a little bit spotty in some places. And so what classification are you in paratriathlon? Yeah. So in paratriathlon, I compete in the wheelchair classification. And then for us, that is split into two subcategories. So there's Mm -hmm. ones and twos within the wheelchair class. And I'm a two, so that's the higher functioning group uh, within paratriathlon. Okay, and then we'll then we'll cover Nordic skiing in a little bit. But your classification for Nordic ski? Yeah, so for that again, it's the sitting classification, um, and I'm an LW eleven and a half. Mm-hmm. So within sitting, there are five different classifications, where ten would be the least amount of function, um, and then twelve is the most amount of function. Right. And it goes in half increments. Okay, great. So in 2016, your class for paratriathlon wasn't included in the Rio Paralympics. And so you kind of, did you go looking for another sport or what happened in terms of your transition to, to doing Nordic ski? Yeah, it it was a bit of right place, right time. So mm-hmm. Right around when they made the announcement for the classes for paratriathlon in Rio, I had just moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Um, And when I moved up there, someone told me about an adaptive Nordic skiing program. Mm -hmm. So that was intriguing to me. It was just something to try out. I was, you know, heard that Madison was a lot more into the winter sport community than anywhere I'd lived before. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, once the announcement was made that my class wasn't included the director for the nordic program reached out to me and said hey you know do you want to try paranordic we have a camp coming up and you know it's another endurance sport that you could can try out and and potentially have the opportunity to go to the paralympics so Mm -hmm. yeah it was pretty immediate for me once i went to a camp for nordic i really kind of fell in love with that sport too and have been doing both ever since and had you ever skied before? No, not really. Um, I would say <laughs> my middle school had re- very randomly in this Chicago suburb, my middle school had Nordic skis. And so whenever there was enough snow, they would throw the kids out with these Nordic skis with like no instruction <laughs> at all on, on what what we should be doing and we would just shuffle and make our way around the soccer field so that in my mind that was what cross-country skiing was and so when I actually went out for the first time and I had to go up a hill and then down a hill I was like oh my gosh what is this we're not around a soccer field (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's crazy and had you ever shot a rifle before no yeah that was also a new new thing for me and yeah, I have really shaky hands. And so I thought, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. But yeah, again, I just really liked kind of the challenge and addition yeah. from the mental side that biathlon adds to, to the sport. Oh, yeah. Wow. Amazing. And look at where you've come to. So in 2021 and 2022, you backed up your gold medal in Tokyo, which in itself was quite an amazing race if anyone's ever seen it Kendall comes from behind and pips her competitor within about two seconds of being on the line or less and then you got three medals in uh, six months later in Beijing 
How did you manage the backup between the two in such a short period of time? Yeah, you know, I think I think I actually underestimated it a little bit. I think I, there was this really big buildup, or I guess people were asking like, oh, two games in six months. And in my mind, I kept saying like, well, we do this every season. We switch between summer and winter. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, just like an every two years thing. It's something that we do every season. But I think for me, the bigger challenge was just the mental aspect of it. Mm. There was so much like mental energy that went into preparing for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And then just to have to like repeat that for Beijing and then add in all of the restrictions around COVID and having to isolate and really kind of, yeah, like shut yourself off from the rest of the world was, yeah, I, I really think mentally it was a harder task mm-hmm. for me than physical. And I think that's just because in the six or so years that I've been doing both sports, I've, you know, I've kind of gotten used to what that transition looks like and not that it's easy, but you kind of know what to expect from it and how to kind of best prepare your body for that transition. Mm. Yeah. So can you talk us through the transition? What, how is it different competing or or training for say para try than it is for nordic ski can you give us an idea of like is are they similar in terms of the volume of training but just different in terms of the technical aspects or where do you find the biggest differences yeah i would say triathlon is maybe a little bit more volume just because obviously you're doing three sports and and so mm-hmm. the time to train the three sports is a little bit more but not not a ton difference in terms of how many hours I'm doing a week. Mm-hmm. I think obviously just the techniques and how you're moving your arms is is quite different between between the two seasons. And so it's the sport specific strength is really what you kind of have to reestablish and that transition from one season to the next. And mm-hmm. uh, they're both endurance sports. So your cardio fitness translates over. So there's always part of the transition is I think of it like trying to catch your muscles and your sport specific muscles up to where you're at cardiovascularly. So Uh, the first couple of days or even just the first day, I would say I'm like, oh, yeah, you're like ready to go and can push actually pretty hard. And then immediately the next day, you're just so sore and the (laughs) like. (laughs) <laughs> the muscle fatigue sets in and you're like, oh yeah, I have not been yep. Nordic skiing. I haven't been swimming for however many months. And uh, so that's, I think the hard part of the transition to balance is not pushing yourself mm. too hard where you over overdo what your muscles are capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you give us a bit of an idea of what a typical training week might look like when you're training for triathlon? So currently, what would a typical training week look like? And then we'll look at how that maybe compares to a typical training week for Nordic afterwards. So let's start with triathlon. Yeah. So during the triathlon season, I'm swimming usually five days a week. So Monday Mm -hmm. through Friday, we'll swim. And I would say that's typically like the first thing I do in the day. Mm -hmm. And then uh, usually running about four times a week or so. And that's usually like one session that would be on the track. So a harder workout, 
and then maybe a hard workout on the road, mm-hmm. a long run, and then an easy run. So those are usually kind of like the four workouts that, that I would have. And then the bike is usually six days a week. Mm-hmm. So I try to have the most frequency on the bike. Um, it is the longest section of the triathlon. So just having more frequency and miles I think is important there. Mm-hmm. And then strength three times a week. Mm-hmm. And then how does that compare? So that's sort of, what's that, 5, 9, 15, 18 sessions a week, roughly. Yeah. Yep. And would you say, yeah, so on the Nordic side? For that, yeah, so we're typically skiing like six days of the week there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll do at least one ski workout a day and usually strength, I would say, in this competition season, it's usually two times a week that we're in strength. It's a mm-hmm. little bit trickier on the Nordic side because we're doing a fair bit more traveling um, just because our competitions are longer. Mm-hmm. So we're always trying to find, you know, how to do strength when you're on the road is a little bit more difficult. So strength is about two, mm-hmm. sometimes three times a week. And then, yeah, occasionally we'll ski twice in a day, but usually... Not not too often, maybe two times a week or so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say it's it's less sessions for sure on the Nordic side, but maybe a little bit longer of an average session than yeah. for travel. Yeah, so you probably go for a couple of hours as opposed to maybe you know a forty five minute to hour for some of your sessions for triathlon. Yeah, exactly. I would say in triathlon, my sessions are usually sixty to ninety minutes and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for Nordic, they're they're usually ninety or longer. Mm-hmm. And how many shooting sessions do you do a week for for Nordic? Yeah, so we will usually we'll do like combo sessions of shooting and on snow, mm-hmm. and that would maybe be like two or three times a week. And then we'll also have times where we'll go into an indoor range where we're just shooting, and that we'll maybe do two of those a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the mental side of that, is that, do you think that the mental side of Nordic is a little bit more challenging than the mental side of triathlon? I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely on the biathlon side of things, there that's pretty mental. And I would also say just the racing style is a little bit different in Nordic because we have, we have six different races, so three biathlon, three cross country, and mm-hmm. just with the dis- different distances and and how those are, how we race those, you mm-hmm. you have to be a little bit more tactical, I would say, especially in like our sprint race on the Nordic side. Whereas triathlon, it, it is we're non drafting, mm-hmm. and also because I'm in that higher classification of wheelchair athletes. I'm coming from behind. Right. And so I always say like my tactic is really just to go. <laughs> There's not not much thinking on kind of like when you're going to make a smart pass or that type of thing because you're mm-hmm. just trying to make up every second you can and yeah, so there's I would say less tactics there. So with the wheelchair class in triathlon, do they start you a certain amount of time behind the ones or how do they manage that difference between the the twos and the ones in the wheelchair category? Yeah. So it's a set time difference. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like in, in Tokyo, we started 
four minutes and four seconds behind. So they come up with the time factor and and that's set for every single race. It's the same, same time difference. And so the person that you passed basically on the line in Tokyo, were they a one? Is that someone that you were catching up time? They were. Yep. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I was kind of like cutting away, chipping away at that four minutes, the whole race and just had enough room (laughs) to make it up. Lucky it wasn't four minutes and six seconds difference. (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. I mean, even five seconds would have been too much. Man, they got their time right, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what everyone was like. Well, maybe the factor is right. (laughs) So. How do you manage your nutrition? Is there a substantial difference in how you eat between training for triathlon versus Nordic ski? Like, What are the key differences that you see? Yeah, I would say overall my nutrition is pretty similar between the two. Mm -hmm. I guess one big difference for sure is in the summer I'm obviously dealing with hot and humid conditions a lot of times and especially in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm not a good sweater at all. Yep. And so that's something that was really, really key for me working with nutrition. And then also our like sports physiologist leading into Tokyo is just trying to train my body to actually sweat mm-hmm. and making sure that my hydration was, was up enough for that to be possible. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, that's something that I'm definitely more focused on in the summer Compared to winter, yep. I w- would say, yeah, otherwise I do think it is it is pretty di- similar between the two. Do you, does your weight stay pretty stable between the, the summer and the winter? In general, it does. Yeah, I would say my weight stays pretty similar, but maybe like body composition changes a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think in general in the winter, I, I put on a, a bit of muscle mass. So Nordic skiing is is pretty strength based for sure mm-hmm. compared to triathlon and so yeah I definitely I come off of the Nordic season and I'm just really strong mm-hmm. um, whereas it, throughout the triathlon season I might like lean out on my muscle a little bit but yeah in general my weight stays pretty pretty constant throughout the year mm-hmm. and so can you give us a, a run through for example of what you're eating at the moment if we you know if you start with you, know, you said that most mornings you swim. So do you eat anything before you swim? Yeah. So that was one thing that I also started incorporating more of is actually eating before the swim. I've always struggled with kind of having food in your stomach while you're swimming, mm-hmm. but I've just kind of learned to tolerate it because I perform so much better when I mm. have some amount of food before a practice. Um, so yeah, I'll usually have a, a lighter breakfast, so maybe like a bowl of cereal and some coffee mm-hmm. before I swim. And then throughout the swim, I'll, especially if it's like a, a key workout, I'll have some sort of like carbohydrate. So whether that's a chew or just like a, a sport drink within like in my bottle or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, but some sort of carbohydrate intake. And then after swim, I'll typically have like a second bigger breakfast before going into either like a run or a bike. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, kind of do that second workout of the day and and then go and have lunch 
And then typically we'll have, yeah, maybe like if I do a strength session, if I'm doing a third session in a day, it's usually a strength one. Mm -hmm. And then again, kind of usually either right after that session, I'll go right to dinner. Or if I'm not going right to dinner, then I make sure to have some sort of like recovery drink or smoothie Mm -hmm. that has like some amount of carbohydrates and protein. Mm-hmm. And, and so what do you like to have for your second breakfast? Yeah, my second breakfast, let's see, it, it varies, but I, I really like like a yogurt parfait and maybe like English muffin, mm-hmm. yeah, like a, a breakfast sausage or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, fruit on the parfait. I'd say that's pretty typical. Mm-hmm. And what about lunch? Is that usually a lighter lunch or do you usually make lunch a bigger meal? I think it depends. I usually, I try to go based off of like just how hungry I am. And I know that seems like silly, but I think just with the amount of training that we're doing, I would say for me, a bigger thing is just making sure I'm eating enough throughout the day. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess on a heavier day, like if, if both of the workouts that I've had so far are like intensity sessions, that lunch is usually pretty big. But if it's like an easier swim or even if it's a heavy swim, but then I follow it up with like an easy run, then my lunch might be a little bit lighter mm-hmm. and more like heavy on vegetables and less less of a carbohydrate. So try to balance that out based on mm-hmm. whether it's like a big training day or not. Yeah. Do you find that your appetite actually follows the training load pretty effectively? Like when it's heavier that you get hungrier? Yeah, for the most part, I I do think it kind of matches. The one thing where I do struggle with not feeling hungry is when I am really hot. Mm -hmm. I find that I have a hard time like feeling hungry right away or kind of within the time frame that I would want to be eating. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'll use more of like a recovery drink or smoothie, something like that, because it's at least something that I can get down and it can be cold and it it's kind of within, you know, like, okay, this is like 30 minutes after I can take this in and then buy myself mm-hmm. a little bit of time to like settle and, and get hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And let your, your appetite actually catch up with you. Yeah. I think a lot of people have trouble with the fact that when they're really, really hot and that their appetite isn't great. So it sounds like you've found a really nice strategy for that where you still get your nutrition in, but in a way that's easy to to, to consume and actually contributes to that cooling effect. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, a, it's very refreshing <laughs> too when you, when you have something <laughs> cold right after, so. Yep. And so what strategies, so you said that for Tokyo with the heat and humidity, and it was a really hot and humid day that, that, that your race was on. So you did quite a bit of heat acclimation before you went. We had a, we had a podcast just recently with Ben Stevenson who'd done some work with heat acclimation and also with assessing temperatures during a paratriathlon. And he was saying that, you know, that heat acclimation was a key component to managing your performance in hot conditions. Did you use any other strategies to cool yourself down before the race or or during the race? Yeah, that that was such a key part for us. And so I'm fortunate that I live at the 
Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. And we have this really awesome facility where we can control the the climate and altitude. So we did a ton of training Mm -hmm. in there for heat acclimation, where we would set it to Tokyo conditions, so sea level, but also hot and humid. Um, So like 90 degrees, Mm -hmm. 90% humidity. And and not only was that heat acclimation, but it gave us time to actually figure out what our cooling strategies were going to be during the race. Mm-hmm. So figuring out, you know, what were our hydration needs going to be, because it was probably likely going to be significantly different than other races that we were used to. Mm-hmm. So increasing the amount of hydration that you were having, especially on the bike in the racing chair, it's kind of too little too late and very difficult I think (laughs) to take in hydration so it was mainly focused on getting hydration on the bike and then the other thing that we did was have these like ice stockings Mm -hmm. so it was just yeah like a a nylon um, stocking that we were filled with ice and then you could you could pretty much put it anywhere you wanted so I had one that I would just like basically just like lay on top of me when I was in the hand cycle. Mm -hmm. And then I threw one kind of between my knees and my chest in the racing chair. Mm. Um, And just having that little bit of ice to kind of like cool yourself internally was a big help, at least physically, but also just mentally knowing that you had that little bit of ice with you. Mm -hmm. And so how did you manage your fluid on the on the bike component, did you like you can't use a camelback because you're lying prone in your in your bike in your hand bike. So how did you actually drink on the bike? Yeah, so on on the bike, there's actually like kind of behind the headrest, there's this like a little space and pocket where where you could fit a bottle. Mm-hmm. But I actually used like the bladder from a camelback. Mm-hmm. And I threw it in there in that little space and just like taped it onto my bike. It was not high, <laughs> like sophisticated or anything, but, and then yeah, I had a straw coming around to me mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I was just able to kind of take in sips when I needed to. Mm-hmm. Cool. And with the travel component that you have, particularly with Nordic Ski, but also to a degree with, with triathlon, how do you manage the travel aspect? Do you find that there's any major challenges with that? I would say probably where I struggle the most in travel is I have a bit of like a sensitive gut. And mm-hmm. so when I travel and, and get out of my routine of what I'm eating, yeah, I can just tend to have some stomach issues. And so I try as much as I can to to really be conscious of what I'm eating when I travel and, and try to keep it somewhat familiar um, to what I'm used to. So do you take do you take your own food with you sometimes if you if you know you're going to a place where you're not sure about what the food supply is? Yeah, I, I definitely started doing that more during COVID when a lot of the races that we were going to were bubble scenarios and Mm -hmm. you didn't really have control over what food was you were going to be given so yeah we had we had a race where every meal was delivered on your door and you had zero choice in what you were getting giving oh wow um so that was quite tough and so for that race I knew that's what the scenario was going to be and yeah so that I brought a lot of food to that race to eat Mm -hmm. and I think Ever since then, I, I've 
just kind of saw the benefit of that and have started bringing with me more food. But I think a lot of the places that we go to, they they do have a really great selection. And in general, I'm not like too picky of an eater. So I, mm-hmm. I don't struggle too much on finding something that I can eat. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what recommendations would you have for athletes who – you know, adaptive athletes who are looking to get into a sport and, and maybe are considering either paratriathlon or Nordic ski? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I would say just try it out. <laughs> you know, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess for me in both sports, it was, you know, once I, I tried them, I knew that was something that I was pretty committed to and kind of jumped right into it. And yeah, I, th- I think trying to find... You know, I guess in in the U.S. we have some pretty great triathlon, paratriathlon clubs um, that that are really helpful in getting people involved in the sport. I don't know what that's mm-hmm. like internationally, but for me that was huge because I could get started in the sport, but not, you know, triathlon. There's obviously a, a big barrier with equipment. You know, you need a hand cycle and you need a racing chair and a wetsuit and there's all these different components of it. Mm. And so if you have that help of being able to borrow equipment or loan soft mm-hmm. before you can try it out and, you know, fully commit that, I think that's a great resource that's available. Yeah. So traveling with all of that equipment, that must, you know, two thirds of your luggage must be bike and racing chair. Yes. I mean, it's a bit ridiculous when I show up to the airport (laughs) because, yeah, I'll have the racing chair and my bike and, you know, my own luggage. And, yeah, so it's a bit of a traveling circus, but um, I think everyone everyone looks like that once you have a bike bag. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And... And, I mean, it's not as complicated as trying to get rifles through for, for when you're traveling with Nordic ski. That's that's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's more, I would say, triathlon has bigger and bulkier items, but the biathlon rifle is definitely more complicated and I guess mm. can come with some risks of having to deal with like international police. <laughs> so... <laughs> Fortunately, you travel with a group of people and, and some staff, so that helps a lot. <laughs> yes, although I did was traveling solo once with my biathlon rifle and thought I was going to get detained in Scotland. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Any recommendations that you have for coaches and practitioners who may be new to working with para-athletes? Yeah, you know, I think I, I maybe have – a bit of a different perspective because I just grew up doing non-adaptive sports for so long. And I think mm-hmm. maybe there's an assumption that it has to be really different, but I think for the most part, it's, it's pretty similar. And, and just kind of asking the athlete, like what are the adaptations that you need, I think is a way less daunting question than, than maybe what they're expecting. And mm-hmm. so don't be hesitant to kind of jump in and, ask those questions and include an athlete that has a disability in in your group yep yeah that's I think that's that's great it's it's just as simple as asking a question around what what can you do and and not thinking about how much you might have to modify because in on the whole the training 
programs themselves are very similar. It's just you may have to adjust to to look after, I guess, the safety aspects. Number one, because you know, with with a wheelchair race versus a, and and a hand cycle, they're a little bit different in terms of just how you manage the safety aspect for a ride or a run. Correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you know, in a hand cycle, visibility is always a concern, and so just making sure you have the proper flags and doing everything you can possibly do to make yourself visible Mm. but yeah I mean when I was swimming Mm -hmm. it it was really simple it was just okay Kendall's not going to do any of the kick sets I'm just going to pull instead of kick and Mm. and yeah a lot of time it it was just if we were doing a heavy kick set I would jump a few lanes up so I was with a faster group and I would pull and so as simple as that of Mm -hmm. just changing what lane I was swimming with so I matched their speed better. It didn't have to be too complicated. Hmm. And when you do a pull set, do you use a pull boy between your legs to, to kind of keep your legs floating or how, you know, what adaptation do you make then? I do. Yeah. So I'll, I'll use a pull boy and, and yeah, maybe paddles. I think triathlon's a, a bit different in that the wheelchair class, you can always use either a wetsuit or wetsuit pants to help with floating your legs mm-hmm. um so a lot of times that's what I'm swimming with is uh, at least wetsuit pants um just to kind of get a feel for that mm-hmm. okay great wow there's so much I could talk to you you know this could be a very long conversation but I, I'm aware of your your time commitments <laughs> and and the fact that you probably need to go and either do another session or get some food into you so <laughs> can we finish off with what's your favorite food oh what's my favorite food well, I think everyone would tell you ice cream, which is probably accurate, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe not the right answer on this podcast, but it's the truth. <laughs> all, all I'm interested in is the truth. Any particular flavor? Uh, I'm always a fan of like a caramel flavor. Uh, it's caramel uh-huh. with a little chocolate. The best ice cream I've ever had was a sea salt honeycomb ice cream. Oh, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> sounds delicious. So you and Eileen Carey must must go to town when you're celebrating on ice cream because she was talking about how it has to be mint chocolate chip ice cream. Okay, I'm, mint chocolate chip is a good go-to. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kendall, for your time, and uh, we wish you all the best for, I guess. Looking forward maybe to both Paris and um, Milan Cortino. Yes, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) That's the plan right now. But, you know, I think taking it year by year is is always my approach. Yep. Well, all the best for at least a year where you don't have to think too much about competing at that higher level and have a little bit of breathing space (laughs) and then can regroup ahead of Paris. But, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and and for your insight. It's been really good talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Liz. This was fun. I think Kendall's a great example of how you can combine your skill set and cover a range of sports with that. You don't have to just compete in one particular sport. And I find it really interesting how a summer and a winter sport can actually be reasonably similar and not actually interfere with each other in terms of being able to be competitive at the highest level. 
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on the podcast website or share it with your friends and with your family. Please join us next time when we talk to Kat Ross, who is a para rower.